Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Rabbanit Nachama Goldman Beresh on Parashat Kitavo. This podcast is sponsored by Jeff and Alyssa Hirok in honor of our dear friends and family who have engaged with and enhanced Jeff's Torah study. To learn more about how to subscribe to Pardes from Jerusalem, please visit elmod.pardes.org. And now, here is Nahama Goldman Barish. In one of the opening passages in the portion of Kitavo, there is emphasis on the word today. And I quote Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 16 to 19. Today, the Lord your God commands you to do these statues and ordinances. You shall therefore observe and do them with all of your heart and with all of your soul. You have avouched the Lord today to be your God, and that you would walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his ordinances and hearken unto his voice. And the Lord has avouched you today to be his own treasure, as he has promised you, and that you should keep all his commandments and to make you high above all nations that he has made in praise and in name and in glory, and that you may be a holy people unto the Lord your God, as he has been spoken. And again, we see the word today in chapter 28, verses 1 to 2, and it shall come to pass if you hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord your God to observe all the commandments which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you on high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you shall hearken unto the voice of the Lord your God. And yet, as the listeners already know, and the listeners back in the day already knew, Moses, who is saying these words, will not be there tomorrow. In his masterful way, Moses continues the job he has set for himself from his opening words of Devarim, literally the words, to educate and prepare the people for tomorrow. And in Kitavo, he will do this by connecting the past, most obviously the covenant at Sinai, which has linguistic parallels in many, many verses in this portion of Kitavo, with the presence today and onward into the future. What we have, in essence, is a drawn-out covenant that is of necessity being offered and accepted anew to reflect the formation of a new entity upon entry to the land. Moses gave the Torah. Moses stood at Sinai. Moses is orating Deuteronomy as his parting words born out of his relationship with God and the people over more than 40 years. And he needs to be part of the transition. However, the Torah, if we read it carefully, is making it clear that the next stage of commitment and covenant is on the other side of the Jordan. And while the contents of the covenant are being explained anew by Moses, its closing ceremony will be conducted by Joshua in the land of Canaan. Has scripture crudely separated between these two stages, meaning Moses' input today, followed later by the role of Joshua in implementing the covenant after crossing the Jordan, it would have created the impression that we are dealing with two separate matters. It might have contributed further to a lessening of its import as time passes and gets further from this moment today on the plains of Moab. For this reason, the Torah is worded in an ambiguous manner, 
And it seems that it is on the basis of the content that Moses is relating here and now to the people that the closing ceremony of the covenant was conducted on Mount Eval. In other words, if we read the portion of Kitavo, it's not completely clear, is the covenant taking place today or is it only going to take place in some future time on Mount Eval? It was by virtue of Moses that the covenant, of course, was made, even if he himself is no longer present to actualize the ceremony in which it will be activated. The key word in the section today is thus a complex term alluding to a drawn-out day that began at a certain point but continued far beyond the limits of an ordinary day. The perception of one long day that extends far beyond 24 hours will be reinforced by looking at the verses that describe the commandment to write the Torah on a set of 12 stones. A close look at the verses suggests that there are in fact two sets of stones. I'm reading now from verses in chapter 27, one section immediately following the other, in which there is a description of the commandment to write on the stones. In verses 1 to um, 4, we have as follows. Moses and the elder of Israel, elders of Israel charged the people saying, Observe all the instruction that I enjoin upon you this day. On the day that you cross the Jordan into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall erect large stones and coat them with plaster. You shall inscribe upon them all the words of this Torah when you cross over, so that you may enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. And immediately after, in the next verse, it is written, Upon crossing the Jordan, you shall set up these stones about which I charge you this day on Mount Aval and coat them with plaster. There you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. Do not wield an iron tool over them. You must build the altar of the Lord your God of unhewn stones. You shall offer on it burnt offerings to the Lord your God. And you shall sacrifice there offerings of well-being and eat them, rejoicing before the Lord your God. And on the stones you shall inscribe all the words of this Torah most distinctly. Well, which is it? Are you writing the stones and putting them in the Jordan when you cross the river into the land? Or are you setting these stones on Mount Aval? Read this way, if we read it carefully, the text actually should actually suggest two different spaces in which stones will be written upon. Professor Yoni Grossman understands that there were two ceremonies, if you will, or really one placement and one ceremony. The first, the placement of the 12 stones took place upon crossing the Jordan when the stones were covered in plaster and inscribed with the words of Torah. And these are placed in the Jordan River as memorial to the transition of finally entering the land. The second placement of stones will take place on Mount Aval, a several-day journey from the crossing point, where there will be a formal covenantal ceremony complete with building of altar and sacrifices. Here, too, 12 stones covered with plaster will be inscribed upon with the words of Torah. Taken together with the Torah's emphasis on today, the acceptance of the covenant does not actually begin in the moment of the formal ceremony. It begins today here on the plains of Moab, and in fact, it began at Sinai, and even further back than that, as we will see later on in the podcast. Well, what was inscribed on the 12 stones? Was it really the entire Torah? Not all commentaries think so. 
Let's look at four distinct and different positions. The Abarbanel, written by Don Isaac Abarbanel in Spain, who lived in the 15th century, suggests that only the Ten Commandments were inscribed on stone. This creates an obvious link to Sinai. Just as they had been originally inscribed on stone at Sinai, so too were they inscribed upon entry into the land of Israel. Thus, only a small, albeit central part of the Torah, was actually engraved in stone. This fits well with the many linguistic parallels between Sinai and the covenant or the covenantal ceremony that will take place after the children of Israel enter the land. In both places, the Ten Commandments stand as testimony to our commitment to God. And even in our own lives, synagogues often have replicas of the Ten Commandments hanging above the ark. It is enough to remind us of who we were and what we experienced when we stood at Sinai to remind us who we are today when we enter synagogue. The Rasag, written by Rabbi Sadia Gaon in Persia in the 9th and 10th century, suggests that it was not the text of the Torah which was written, but rather a list of all the 613 commandments in the Torah. Thus, the stone was similar to the books of commandments known as Sifrei Mitzvot written in the Middle Ages listing all of the commandments in the Torah. This to me is an interesting approach that syncs well with something written by the 19th century commentary Ha'amek Davar, written by Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, known as the Nitziv, who notes the necessity of the practical mundane precepts in relationship with God. In the middle of the covenant, one would expect grand statements of theology, monotheism, and belief in our God above all others. This fits well, perhaps, with the Ten Commandments, which starts out with a statement that God is one, in the, in the interpretation of the Abarbanel, of what was written on the stones. However, the Rasag is saying it's not the Ten Commandments, it's the 613 mitzvot. Building on what I just read or brought in the name of Rabbi Berlin, in his words, a person who desires to be holy and otherworldly will be inclined to be reluctant to observe the practical precepts of Judaism, since they might interfere with his religious devotion. Nevertheless, all of God's commands must be kept. The text here promises that God will enable those who wish to commune with him in holiness to achieve that level of sanctity, even when engaged in keeping his everyday precepts. To clarify, the Hamek Davar makes an unusual distinction between the performance of a mitzvah and the state of holiness and communion with God. The former links man with his everyday tasks, the earthliest and most mundane of them liable to distract him from sacred matters. The greatest blessing of God was that obedience to mitzvot, even those associated with everyday affairs, in other words, social precepts, will be rewarded with a guarantee that they will not distract us from the holy life nor act as a barrier between us and God. Now, I happen to love this idea. In any relationship, it is the tedious and mundane things we do for one another that reflect the longstanding nature and the commitment we make to our parents, our children, spouses, and to God. The sublime moments, the feelings of love and passion, they're what inspire us to continue. But without the mundane, there can be no anchor. And so going back to the Rasag or Rasad Yuga'on, it is Davka, specifically the 613 precepts, many of, which will, many of which will seemingly distract us from the pinnacles of communion and sublime uh, connection to God that are necessary in order to have a covenantal relationship.
So, so far we have seen the Abarbanel, who focuses on the Ten Commandments, and Rav Sadiqa on the Rasag, who focuses on the unadorned list of mitzvot, and we brought the idea of Rabbi Berlin, known as the Ha'amik Davar, that um, it is the precepts that are necessary in order to adorn and complement the sublime. Now we bring the Ralbag, Rabbi Levi ben Gershom from Provence in the 14th, 13th and 14th century, who offers a different possibility of what was written on the 12 stones. Simply put, the tochacha, the blessings and curses that appear centrally in Kitavo, were written down on these stones. And he notes that this is implied in a verse in Joshua, chapter 8, verse 34, and afterwards he, Joshua, read all of the words of the Torah, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the Torah. So that verse suggests that what is written in the book of the Torah, which is what is written on the stones, are the blessings and the curses, which make up part of the consequence in our journey towards a covenantal relationship with God. Finally, we have Nachmanides Ramban, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman, who lived in Spain in the 12th, 11th, and 12th century, who cites an interpretation which holds that the whole Torah from the beginning of Genesis till the end of Deuteronomy was inscribed on the stones. In the event that you think this defies credibility and requires some sort of miraculous intervention, Rabbi David Svi Hoffman in Germany in the 19th century brings archaeological support showing that the writing of the whole Torah on stone, and in this case on 12 stones, is not such a far-fetched idea and certainly would not have required a miracle. The Code of Hammurabi, a code of law from the 18th century BCE, which predates the Torah and was authored by Hammurabi, king of Babylonia, composed of 232 articles and an introduction and a conclusion, is actually inscribed on one large basalt rock. I myself have seen it in the British Museum. So 12 rocks certainly give enough room to write down the whole Torah. Whichever interpretation speaks to you, it is clear that the inscription on the stones, which took place twice, once when crossing the Jordan and again at the ceremony on Mount Aval, creates a deep connection between God, Torah, mitzvot, and the land, which manifests in a visual statement that viscerally represents the crossing over. The Abarbanel provides a fascinating historical foil to this commandment. Quote, it was an ancient custom amongst all the nations that any people or king who conquered a land immediately upon entering it would erect large pillars one on top of the other to mark their having traversed and conquered the area. And they would inscribe on these pillars that in the year so-and-so came the mighty king so-and-so or the mighty nation so-and-so to conquer this land. Indeed, throughout Italy and Spain, um, at any location which came under the control of the Roman Empire at the apex of their strength, one may find to this very day many monuments that the ancients erected, end of quote. And yet the Abarbanel comments that the purpose of the 12 stone monument is not about conquest and glory through victory, but solely about commitment to Torah and mitzvot. That is what will bring glory to God. Our commitment to God, our following in God's ways, that is what is being written down. The Israelites are not to behave as the Romans or other conquering people. They are not to build monuments to their own self-glorification. Rather, they are to build monuments for the sake of God who has given them the land. As noted by scholar Tzvi Shimon, this could be the hidden idea behind the requirement that the altar be constructed of unhewn stones on which an iron tool was not wielded as commanded in Deuteronomy chapter 27 verse 5. 
It is not through man's wielding of iron, suggests Shimon, that he prevails, but through his devotion to God and his law. Just to summarize, when the children of Israel crossed the Jordan, they inscribed 12 stones with words of Torah. And again at Mount Eval, they inscribed 12 stones with words of Torah. Let's take a closer examination of the locale for this covenantal ceremony, Mount Eval, which is where the 12 stones will be laid alongside an altar that will be built and sacrifices that will be brought on that altar. And really, Mount Eval brings us back to one of our formative narratives. In other words, the journey of Abraham from Haran to Canaan. When Abraham enters the land, he proceeds directly to Shechem and Elon Moreh, which is the locale of Mount Eval. Then and only then does God reveal God's self to Abraham and promise the land to Abraham's descendants, thereby informing him that he has reached the right place, the place previously identified as the land I will show you. Following God's revelation and an apparent act of thanksgiving, Abraham builds an altar. He has arrived and the land has been promised to his descendants. This as a backdrop and is noted by many commentaries, specifically Rabbi Chanoch Waxman, who developed this idea. The text in Kitavo forges a connection between divine promises made to Abraham about the centrality of the land as a space in which God's presence is felt and the entry to the land by the children of Israel. Just as Abraham builds an altar in thanksgiving to God upon arriving at Shechem in the land of Canaan, so too the children of Israel are to build an altar at the very same place in the thanksgiving to God upon the fulfillment of the divine promise and their arrival in the land. The ceremony of the stones is essentially about memory and covenant recreation, but it is also about arrival and the celebration and thanksgiving upon reaching the desired destination. It connects us to our founding father, Abraham, who made a journey into the unknown and symbolizes the nation's celebration and making a similar journey. The path forward is clear. This is not a new covenant. The Torah received at Sinai is now being implanted in the soil of Israel. But it simultaneously must be remembered that the original covenant took place outside of the land of Israel. The reason for this, in my opinion, is that the Torah is not dependent or, nor confined to Israel. It is to be observed wherever the nation may find itself. It precedes the entry into the land and it is, in fact, a necessary prerequisite. Relationship with God is not about a particular time or place. The word today, which is the focus of the end of Deuteronomy, is today, meaning our today in the here and now, wherever we are. While we give import to certain moments and places uh, in our history, there is also a fluid ongoing character that defies any sort of concrete delineation. Before concluding, I want to look at two verses that appear at the beginning of the portion. We actually read them back in the beginning of the podcast that to me symbolize the powerful potential in the place where God and the Jewish people meet. Back in chapter 26, verses 16 to 19. היום הזה אדוני אלוהיך מצווך לעשות את החוקים האלה ואת המשפטים ושמרת ועשית אותם בכל לבבך ובכל נפשך. So the Lord your God commands you this day, here's our first today, to observe these laws and rules. But what I'm interested in is a word that appears in the next two verses. At Adonai ha'amarta hayom liyot lecha lelohim. You have avouched this day or affirmed this day that the Lord is your God. That you will walk in his ways. That you will observe his laws and commandments and rules. And you will obey him. 
And now, the next verse, and God has avouched to you this day, or using another translation, affirmed to you this day, to be to you, a, uh, his, to, uh, God has promised you, his treasured people, that you will be to him a nation who shall observe all of his commandments. And then God will set you in fame and renown and glory high above all the nations. So pay attention to the special way in which the reciprocity between God and Israel is presented through the double use of this very rare verb, ha'amara. And it's translated, I used both translations, avouch or affirm. You have avouched the Lord today, and the Lord has avouched to you today, or you have affirmed the Lord, or the Lord has affirmed you. Notice the order. First, Israel affirms, and then God affirms. The commentators have adopted two main approaches to explain this verb. The Rashbam, and this fits well with how we've translated, avouched or affirmed, that the word Hamara is derived from Aleph Mem Resh, from say, that is to say something that will appease another party and cause him to do something. Israel caused God to agree to be their God. God caused Israel to agree to be God's people. And according to this explanation, this verse emphasizes the deep acquiescence that must be verbalized in order for it to take effect. That's what underlies the covenantal relationship between Israel and God. It was not God who first asked to be Israel's God. Rather, Israel, Ha'emir, requested this of God until God agreed. And it was not Israel who asked to be God's treasured people. It was God who wanted this and Israel accepted. In other words, there's a parallel movement one towards the other. Another interpretation among the commentaries is to understand Hamara in the sense of singling out, amplifying, raising up related to Amir, the top of a tree. The people of Israel magnify God in the world, and in return, God magnifies the people of Israel. This, this interpretation sees the verse as focusing on the results of the covenant, but both sides need one another in order for there to be meaning to their presence in the world. In any event, using the same verb, and it's a rare verb, to present the relationship between God and Israel is striking. The twofold use of the same verb reflects the reciprocity that Moshe fashions in his oration. The covenant into which Israel is about to enter is a covenant to which both sides commit themselves, each side elevating, enhancing, lifting up, verbalizing the significance of other. And in my opinion, this is really the only way any covenant, well, really any relationship can be fully realized. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcast today. Be sure to follow us on Spotify for the latest episode of Pardes from Jerusalem. Be sure to tune in next week as Yiska Smith discusses Parashat Nitzavim. Thanks for listening.